Redemption City Church. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm a member here at the church, and I really hope that all of you are having a super day. Now, I know a lot of us have um, big plans for later. We're going to usher people into our living rooms, right? All those friends and family. We're going to establish ourselves as the chiefs of chicken wings, right? So let's kick this thing off and get you out of here. I'm sorry. I'm a dad. I can't help myself. Let's get to the word. I promise. I'll be swift. We are in week four of our gospel culture series, looking at the so-called one another passages of the New Testament, instructions like welcome one another, forgive one another, confess sin to one another. These are instructions aimed at building a sort of culture, namely a gospel culture, okay? But culture is an extraordinarily complex phenomenon. When we talk about culture, we're talking about something that includes our behaviors, our rituals, our art, our beliefs. And so to try to build a culture with instruction, you have no chance. In fact, instruction alone is completely powerless to build a culture. It would be like having a steering wheel, turning a steering wheel in order to set a direction, but there being no engine in the car. Right? You might set a good direction. You might point the tires in the right direction with instruction, but if there is no engine in the car, you're not going to go anywhere. In order for culture to form, there has to be an engine. There has to be something fueling people, inspiring people, moving people, in order for them to begin to move into certain behaviors, move into certain rituals, develop certain art, certain food. Something has to animate them. If you think of today's cultural extravaganza, the Super Bowl, it actually is a remarkable case study in culture making. It is a cultural phenomenon. Just imagine for a minute, if there were no such thing as football, (laughs) groans, and then Joe Biden or the president of the world, I don't know, Kanye West or Taylor Swift or somebody, announced, (laughs) announced that everyone needed to gather in living rooms, make seven-layer dip, watch 50 or so men frolic around for three hours and give each other concussions, and you needed to do this repeatedly year after year, okay, maybe a few people would participate, the Swifties would, maybe the Yeezys, whatever you call the Kanye West disciples, but it would not be nearly the phenomenon that it presently is. 115 million people slated to tune in to the Super Bowl in the U.S. alone. Why? Because of the engine that is NFL football. Because over decades, people have had shared experiences. They've made memories. They've formed tribal identities. They've bonded with family members around this engine. There's an engine that is connected with people's hearts And so a culture has formed 
around that. When we talk about a gospel culture, the exact same principles apply. Pastors and apostles can deliver instruction upon instruction upon instruction, but it will not produce gospel culture until the engine of the gospel grips the hearts of the people. So, Redemption City Church, let me ask you, has the gospel gripped you? Or more importantly, is it presently gripping you? Does it presently have a hold of your heart? See, because we have another one another instruction today. This is our fourth. And the danger in a series like this is that we would pile one another instruction upon one another instruction until gospel culture crushes us. Welcome, forgive, confess, comfort, serve, pray, go, 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 do, do, do. It's all good stuff. In fact, it's the best stuff. But if there's no gospel engine, you will fry your little Flintstone legs. That's why I love the context in which the Apostle Peter brings up our particular one another instruction that we're looking at today. We read this instruction a moment ago in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. I'll read it again. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, there's the kicker. Okay. But a few sentences before this, Peter writes this. One chapter previous, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter here is writing to Christians that have been scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey. They have fled from persecution. They are presently being persecuted, many of them. And he's saying, take heart, remember your station. Jesus died to cancel the debt of your sin and to bring you to God. You now live quorum Deo. You now live before the face of God. This suffering that you're experiencing in the present reality, in the flesh, it's not punishment. You are simply walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You are walking in the very way of Jesus. You are living his life after him. He went before you. He cut away through this bramble. Yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive again by the Spirit. Peter is telling them and us, that's you, Christian. That's your life. So don't fear death. Don't fear anything. You know the end of the story. Death won't win. Christ trampled it, and he made a mockery of those who traffic in it. 
And then Peter reminds these Christians of their baptism, that they actually participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what baptism is. It's a testimony that we are bound to Jesus in his death. We go down under the water, and we are bound to Jesus in his resurrection. We come up out of the water, and Peter says, Jesus rose from death, and then he kept rising. He's gone now into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christian, hear this. You have no reason to wonder ever if God is with you. When you are at your absolute worst, when you're tempted to despair, when there is no sign of fruit on your life, when you're ready to give up and call it quits, when you're tempted to drown that sorrow in anesthesia, to numb it, to distract yourself in some way, know this, your righteousness is seated at the right hand of God. He is not wondering what has happened to it. It sits at his right hand and advocates for you. The great author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he said it this way, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off. This is gospel. This is where gospel culture comes from. This is the engine that must drive it. Hearts awakened to this stunning reality. We are one with Jesus. So yes, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is hospitality? Philo Xenos, that's the Greek word. Philo, love, Xenos, stranger. Love of stranger, like Philadelphia, Philo, brotherly love, like xenophobic, Xenos, stranger. Hospitality is the opposite of xenophobia. It's love of stranger. It's opening your door to the stranger, welcoming them into your home, giving them a place at the table making sure that they are cared for and sheltered. It's opening your doors to non-family, to strangers, to people that you don't have an obligation to, to outsiders, to people that may have no place to go. In the context of Peter's letter here, he's telling these scattered Christians, take each other in. Open your doors to one another. Feed one another. Offer a place to stay to one another because they're in foreign lands. They're in what is modern-day Turkey, and 
they're spread out, and people from all different cultures and backgrounds are coming to faith in Christ, and oftentimes when they do come to faith, it's that great personal consequence to themselves. Their family may reject them. They need other Christians to treat them like family, to take them in, to have their back. Here in our modern Western context, the stakes may not seem as high, likely they are not as high for most of us, but I am guessing that all of us can recall times of being an outsider. Maybe as a kid you switched schools, maybe you moved to a different city, maybe it's just going to a new church, maybe this church. And even if the stakes are only social, all of us could acknowledge that that is not a comfortable situation to be in, where you're an outsider, where you're a stranger, where you're not known. And how important is it when someone reaches out, when someone opens their doors, when someone opens their heart? I love that Peter tacks on here without grumbling to the end of this instruction. He knows. He knows that it can be incredibly challenging and awkward to open your doors and to open your heart to a stranger, to someone who is different than you, someone who's not like you, someone who has no shared experience with you per se. I remember um, back when Acacia and I lived in Chicago, we invited a new member of our church uh, over for dinner. This was someone who had recently been baptized in our church but he had a very different cultural background, very different life experience from me or any of the members of my family. He'd grown up on the south side of Chicago in a poor Hispanic community, and then he had joined the Marines. He'd gone off and done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He had seen so many hard things in his life, but as a new Christian, his heart was so tender, and he came to our dinner table with our little family, and he was just himself in that moment, which I loved. He and I had become friends. We felt comfortable around each other, and so we shared the meal together. And then after he left, my daughter approached me and said, Dad, he says bleep a lot. (laughs) Yes, yes, he does. His language is a bit saltier than our family is used to. And of course, you know that hospitality can get far more awkward than just that. Those of you who have welcomed people into your home from outside of your circle, from outside of your community, from outside of your country, it can present language barriers that are far more significant than a few bleeps. And I suspect that for those of you who have opened your home in that way, For those of you who have welcomed in someone from an entirely different culture, an entirely different background, that from time to time, rumbles percolate to the forefront of your mind and may even at times leak from your lips. There are moments when things get really hard in hospitality. It's exhausting taxing. And those are the moments when the gospel engine makes all the difference. Because without it, you'll quit. 
without it, you'll despair. So what does it mean for the gospel engine to grip your heart? What does that look like? How do we retain that in our lives? How does it happen and keep happening? I want to spend the rest of our time addressing that question. And I think you may find the answer a bit ironic, hopefully delightfully so. Because when we talk about the gospel gripping our hearts, we're not talking about something esoteric. We're not talking about something that only exists in the mind or only in the world of ideas. We're actually talking about something that happens bodily. Something grounded in flesh and blood. What does it look like when the gospel grips your heart? In a word, hospitality. My wife and I were standing in our kitchen a few weeks back on a Tuesday evening. And I said to her, hey, come watch a documentary with me. She said, what's it about? I said, I have no idea. But I think it's going to be life transforming. She said, okay. I've been working through a book recently that's called The Intentional Father. It's sort of a step-by-step guide to trying to father sons from adolescence into adulthood. And one of the recommended early steps in the book is to watch this particular documentary. And so based on the rest of the book, I thought this is going to be a great movie. So we went in blind, and we were blindsided. This film is called The Work. Some of you may have seen it. It's about a program run in the Folsom Prison, a maximum security prison in California of Johnny Cash fame. And in this particular program, they invite civilians, non-convicts, to come into the prison to participate in four days of group therapy. And so you have convicts and civilians participating in group therapy work together. And many of the convicts have already gone through the program enough times to where they've actually now turned a corner and become facilitators of the program. And so you have convicts leading civilians in this group therapy work. And the focus of the work is zeroing in on those points of pain in our lives that keep us stuck. All of us, no matter our story, have been hurt over the course of our lives. And because we've been hurt, we have adopted protective or defensive postures in order to prevent ourselves from being hurt again in the same way. But unwittingly, those postures, that defensiveness, that guard that we've put up, also prevents us from receiving love. It also cuts us off, really, from what it means to be human. It cuts us off from being tender, from being vulnerable. And love only enters in, in the tender places, in the vulnerable places. When we live with that protective shield in place, any love that might 
come into our lives bounces off. And so in this particular program, they're zeroing in on those places, and it's fascinating to watch these prisoners who've walked this road already. These are hardened criminals. This is a maximum security prison. Most of the inmates have life sentences. These are murderers even, but they have learned to go to such tender places of the heart and to be so vulnerable with each other, they are intimately familiar with what it means to be truly human, that is to put your guard down, if only for a moment, and let love rush in. By contrast, these civilians in the film, people like me, people like you, you could sign up and go. Maybe you should. They, for the most part, don't even know they have a guard up. Because their guard is so sophisticated. My guard is so sophisticated. Your guards are so sophisticated. They're socially acceptable. They blend right in. Passive disposition. Irrepressible joviality. What could be wrong with that? One civilian in particular, Charles, He's such a likable guy, friendly, warm, a good sense of humor. And as he starts to share his story, we discover that he has this deep wound. Charles' father was in prison when Charles was born. So he never met his dad, and his dad never made any effort as far as Charles knows to reach out. And so he starts to talk about this. He starts to move toward the pain of this story. But every time he gets close to the wound, you can see it, he cuts himself up. He backs away. Because there's too much sorrow there. There's too much loss there. There's too much unfulfilled longing there. I promise you, no matter who you are, there are parts of your story that carry that kind of sadness. Charles walks right up to the line and then keeps pulling back. He can't quite put his guard all the way down. Then there's this powerful scene late in the documentary wherein one of the younger convicts, someone who hasn't ever been through any of this therapy work, he's in despair and he's sharing about how the mother of his son won't bring the boy to meet him his new baby boy. And he's saying that he just thinks he should die. His life is meaningless. That he has no reason to go on. He says, if I died, no one would even care. And he says, I think I might just quit. And then, suddenly, Charles goes to this place that he could not go before. All he wants to do is see his baby boy, he says, as if to the universe, like a prayer. And that hurts me. That hurts me a lot. It's breaking my heart. And then he addresses this young convict. I pray to God that you find some type of hope to live. 
And with that comment, Charles breaks down and begins to sob uncontrollably. Queen heaves, he begs, don't give up, please. Fight for your son. He's going to need you. Charles finally goes to that deepest place of pain and vulnerability in himself. Why? So that he can share it. So that he can welcome somebody else into real life, into tender humanity, into unguarded flesh, into what we were actually made to be, vulnerable creatures able to receive and give love, be conduits of love in the world. What's more, he is fighting for a little boy, a little boy he used to be, saying, your son's going to need you someday. Trust me, I know. I think the movie is an incredible depiction of hospitality. If you want an application, consider watching it. These prisoners open their home to welcome in outsiders, but it's not to entertain them. It's to offer themselves. They don't serve food. They serve their own vulnerable hearts. They serve this way of transformation, this way of becoming more human. And Charles, you know, for his part, he sort of picks around the edges of that meal for a while. And then when he suddenly sees, oh, I can show hospitality too. I can participate in this same thing this thing that's being offered to me, this thing that is so much power to take me into these scary places in my own story and make me more into the person that I was made to be. I can participate in that too. When he sees that, he suddenly digs in. He eats the meal whole, and he starts offering the same hospitality that he was shown. Now back to one of the young convicts. This is how the gospel works a beautiful picture of hospitality. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus goes down into the depths of pain. If you've read the gospels, you know this. He goes down into the depths of pain and he becomes fully human through that process. He perfects humanity. He builds the human condition from its current fallen state into this crescendo of what a human person is supposed to be. The scriptures tell us he's made complete through that suffering. He's forged through that fire. And then he invites us into that life, into the very home of God. And yes, he serves a meal. He's a perfect host. But the meal is himself, his own body, his own blood. He says, come to my table and feast on my life. Come taste and see what it is to really live. Come face your pain. Come face your fear. Come lay your guard down. Come and become what I made you to be. A vulnerable, tender vessel of love. A person be a person who can hurt, yes, because your heart is open, but who also can love 
to be loved and be swept up into the very heart of God. This is the gospel. We were outsiders, and he showed us hospitality. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You who were strangers, you who were alienated, you who were outsiders, Jesus said, come all the way in. Come all the way in. He invited you and me into his very body, his scarred body, his broken body. Live here with me. Participate in my life. And many of us, we've been picking around the edges of that meal. Just nibbling for decades. But don't you see? This meal isn't just for us. It's for everyone who would receive it. It's meant to be shared with one another. And if you have opportunity to welcome others into life, and you do, maybe it's time you dig in yourself. Maybe it's time you feast because the outsiders you encounter in your daily life, they don't just need an open door to your house, your dorm, your apartment. They don't just need chicken wings and seven-layer dip. Yes, they need those things. Make those things. Invite them in. Feed them. That's wonderful. But they need an open door into your home, your true home. They need an open door into the very heart of God. And the only way you can offer that is to walk through that door yourself and then leave it open behind you. Walk into the very center of the love of God and then invite others to come with you. Rosaria Butterfield, an academic and gifted author, she discovered God at her neighbor's dinner table. She has an incredible story. She writes this about hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality does not simply flow from the day-to-day interests of the household. You must prepare spiritually. The Bible calls spiritual preparation warfare. Radically ordinary hospitality is indeed spiritual warfare. Church, we have such an opportunity So many people in this city are playing church or think that God is little more than a warm blanket for some comfort when things aren't going perfectly. We know better, or at least we can start knowing better. We can start eating this meal, and we can open our homes for others to eat too. This is life. So press in. Stop nibbling. Don't coast. Get together with other Christians that you trust and share your story. Learn to be vulnerable. Learn to go to the tender places 
of the heart. Learn to go to those places where the love of God rushes in and fills you and makes you new and makes you holy. Not with everyone. Not all the time. Don't become that person. But consistently and persistently. Learn what it means to be a person. And then learn to be loved. Learn to be loved. And you will hear an engine of love turn over inside you. It will ignite within you. Hospitality will not be something you merely do. It will be who you are. Someone who loves the outsider. Someone who loves strangers. A host who welcomes people through the door, welcomes people to your table over and again until you join the heavenly host at the supper of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great hospitality to us. We thank you that when we were aliens, when we were strangers, you broke in. You came to us. You rescued us. You invited us to your table. You invited us to your feast. Thank you, Jesus, that you continue to invite us to that feast, continue to make us new every day. Grateful for your presence in our lives. I thank you for your presence in this church. Thank you for the hearts that are here, the hearts that you have made, that you've made for so much. Pray that you would fill us. Prepare to eat this meal. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.